Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had a non-drinking evening yesterday and consequently I didn't sleep very well. This is definitely a spoiled bastard's problem. So please accept my apology. <laughs> you know... I've actually done column for the Statesman. The bit they cut out of it at the end was my rant about idiots from newspapers sending you emails inevitably with malign intent, saying, mm. I hope you're well, to which yes. I now reply, thank you for asking. No, I'm not. not. I give them details, and then you get back horrified. Oh, that's awful. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and all this sort of thing. Even from the male who then say, my dad had that, and he's not very well either. Oh, Jesus Christ. Seriously. <laughs> well, that makes you feel a lot better. It's, yeah, it's just lunacy, but there you are. Shall we talk about football? Yeah. That's as good a way as any of ruining our lives. Yeah, go on. Hello, everyone. This is Colin Schindler, welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast series that pretends we're all getting younger as we listen. I trick that I hope John Holmes and Paddy Barclay and I can continue to pull off for a few more years. Time was, and I'm sure you can remember it perfectly well, that the football season pretty much finished after the FA Cup final on the first Saturday in May and didn't start up again until the last week in August. Yes, there was a World Cup every fourth year, but in 1958 and 1962, the first World Cups that I can remember, television pictures didn't arrive on our black and white screens until a couple of days after we all knew the result. And that's certainly true of 62 in Chile. And in 1958, to be honest, all I remember is seeing Pelé's goals in the final. It was not until 1966 when football made a significant dent in the summer. That meant, of course, that the cricket season had room to breathe and there was such a thing as a summer game, which wasn't football. And we all remember the landscape before the mid-1980s when live football started to appear on television with increasing frequency until now such is its ubiquity that we simply can't escape it. I remember virtually reading the print off the single page that the Manchester Guardian devoted to sport 
and I never missed an edition of Match of the Day or the Big Match. Now the papers are full of it, and football dominates many front pages as well as the back pages, and there is always an excuse for a football supplement. As for television, well, Murdoch built a second empire on the back of the sky's acquisition of football. I can't help feeling that less is more, and yet here are the three of us adding to the problem another podcast on top of all the other podcasts and all the other football stuff that's available for addicts to mainline. Paddy, is there just too much football, not only on television, but in all our lives? I don't think there can be too much because we can always avoid it. I do know what you mean, though, in terms of football's attitude, the way football has become, in my opinion, an excessive part of conversation. I was a football journalist from 1976, and I can remember going to parties and people saying, you know, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, I'm a journalist. And they'd say, yeah, but what kind of journalist? And I'd sort of mumble something about being involved in sport. Because being associated with football in the 1970s would inevitably lead to one having to defend it against accusations that it was watched by hooligans and played by numbskulls, both of which were ridiculous oversimplifications, but unfortunately had grains of truth. Now, if there's a lull in any conversation, I somehow work in the fact that I used to be a football journalist and everybody has a team, everybody has a second favourite team, everybody has a fantasy team. So I think football has taken over to a slight extent from religion and it's partly taken over from art. I mean, popular art, the Western movie was, I think, was a bit of a football match. You know, you picked a side you wanted, you know, the side that had had the house burnt down and supported it and hoped it won in the end. So it has grown much, much bigger and it's encroached on, among other things, religion and popular art. I don't think that's a good thing because popular art is thought out, as indeed religion should be, whereas football is largely random. I think Paddy's given us a fairly comprehensive answer there. I'm not sure I have much to add. Karl Marx said religion was the opium of the people, didn't he, or whatever it was. Football is now their religion for a lot of people. Is football any more dangerous than religion? I suspect probably not, actually, Mm -hmm. given where we are in the world. I would regard football as being slightly less dangerous actually, than fanatical religion, although fanaticism of all sorts causes problems. However, violence at grounds is nothing like as bad as it was. It's still not good, to be honest. And when the cameras go round on the matches and you see these young children screaming hate about the opposition and Mm. people getting, in my opinion, rather overexcited about the whole thing, Mm. celebrations of goals used to consist of players running back and the other players, one or two of them ran up and they sort of shook hands or (laughs) patted each other on the back and they trotted back to the halfway line and got on with it. Now we get elaborate celebrations involving all sorts of things. Some of them actually are more entertaining than the football I'm watching a lot of the time. My side, they've won every game, but the football is so dull this season that I don't even get to my feet when they score. (laughs) <laughs> and actually, I'm more interested in seeing what Vardy does in terms of winding the crowd up than I am of seeing the football. Is it providing excitement the way it used to? 
there are some cracking games. It has to be admitted. Some of the standard of play is truly terrific. But there's a lot of it which has become pretty negative and joyless in the way it comes out. That's probably because there's too much of it. The way we used to look forward to the weekend and the game and all that sort of thing, well, there's games on every night. And I now even have some sympathy with Mrs. Holmes, who comes in and says, oh, it's footy again on the television. Yeah. Too big for its boots? Ah, I'm not sure. I worry about the direction of some of it, whether it's as exciting. One of the things the Americans have got right with NFL is mm. there's not that much of it. There's not too much of mm. it. They grow it by making sure there's not a lot. Therefore, you do look forward to the game. And it's the same with all sports, isn't it? You know, cricket, one day internationals, T20s, I think there's some very good things coming out of that. But because there's so much of it, you can't remember the result of the last game because there's six of them. Whereas the test match, there's not that many of them. You can remember them individually. We do need to work on scarcity of product, I think, and making things special again, rather than relentless exposure to it I don't enjoy the relentless exposure, I, I confess. I agree, which is why we talked briefly about Champions League group matches and the rather pointlessness of it. We've had a lot of World Cups in recent times. You have the occasional really good match, absolutely, admittedly, but essentially they don't begin till the quarterfinals, you know, until it's actually a knockout and it means something. In all these competitions, you can afford to lose a game and it doesn't actually matter because you'll pick it up later on the competition. Less is more, and in this case, more is less. But I wanted to shift the focus from football on the field, which is a very contemporary problem, to an examination of football off the field and a comparison of where it was. So when John talks about making it special, Paddy, mm. doesn't that sort of shift back towards, you know, match of the day and the big match? And pretty much that's it for televised football and one yes. page of newspaper print for the entire world of sport. That's not necessarily a better thing, but I want to know what your opinion is about the ludicrous change. I mean, the enormous change between then and now in terms of football's dominance. Of all media, yeah. Well, I suppose the media are just following the money. I find it quite ludicrous that some quality newspapers sent four people to Barcelona because Man City are playing there. Why you need four people, I don't know. But they've planned a four-page spread. The game ends nil-nil, it's still a four-page spread. That's just the way it is. Obviously, they've worked out that that's what the audience want. I think it's a turn-off. But I think in order to examine the question whether football's got too big for its boots, who runs football? The world is global now. Therefore, FIFA have a huge role to play. But FIFA are probably the best example of football being too big for its boots. And I think it's got worse since Blatter gave way to Infantino, who's turned out to be even more of a, I was going to say megalomaniac, but even more of a egotist than Blatter was. At least Blatter had some sensitivity to football. And of course, every minute of every day, he's trying to work out ways of making the World Cup bigger, of having a World Club Championship, which is already a farce that nobody outside South America takes any interest in into an even bigger competition. And of course, women's football is going to come into the equation. We're all supposed to watch that. And you spoke earlier about the historical background, Colin, 
about 58 and 62 World Cups. We talk with great authority about them, but we know absolutely bugger all other than what we read in the history books since. But that was a time when you at least had the summer sabbatical in order to start looking forward to the green grass and the smell of it. But that kind of magic, that sort of Christmas morning, wake up and feel a stocking at the bottom of your bed, you know it's going to be there, but you're still surprised by it. That sort of magic, um, and that pertains exactly to what you were saying, that less is more. The problem is I don't see any move towards that because the people who run football at every level are constantly looking for more, 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 hacking away at the goose to find the golden egg. John, you were talking about making it special again. How do you do that? The amount of football makes it can't be special. I accept what Paddy says about Infantino to a degree. His problem is that his brief is to take football around the world, to grow the game. Yeah. And there is no doubt that the way to grow the game is to take it to all these countries, make them feel like they've got a share in it. And, of course, yeah. they want to play in the World Cup. They want to play in the big events. Go back to 62, and most of the sides were from Europe. There were only 16 countries, not 32. Most of them from Europe. And most of them from You can expand the constituency of the World Cup without having too many matches. You could have three country groups and so on, so that people go home after two games if they're useless or Scottish. <laughs> I don't quite understand that, Paddy, because that way you'd have to put on loads and loads of games. And I'll tell you what would happen if that was the case. The players just wouldn't bother to go and it wouldn't be the best in the world. Mm. Can I draw the comparison with tennis? That Wimbledon somehow, or if you regard it as a middle-class elitist and strawberries and cream or not, the fact is that the winner of Wimbledon is pretty much regarded as the best tennis player in the world, certainly on grass, but on, on most courts. And it hasn't shifted. I mean, Wimbledon is still two weeks long. The same number of people go into the tournament. But what is interesting is the number of countries which now dominate are not the ones that dominated in our youth. It was all Americans and Australians in our youth, yes. and it's mm. not any longer. And that has to be a good thing. So there is a sense in which tennis has grown without smothering the big tournament. Now, why can't football do that? You make a very good point there. And actually, tennis still has four majors. But it goes on all through the year. But a lot of those tournaments are pretty irrelevant. You know, we hear that the British number one has been knocked out by the <laughs> Ecuadorian number 17 yeah. in some tournament in Tajikistan or something. Yeah. And we go, oh, because only the big things matter in tennis. But tennis hasn't really... It's grown in certain countries, but it's shrunk, for instance, in the US and probably shrunk in the UK. And I constantly look at sport in terms of probably the wrong way, whether they're buy or sell. Would you still buy football as a commodity? And the answer is, yeah, I would, actually. Would I buy cricket as a commodity? I would. Would I buy golf? No, I don't think I would. I think golf has gone backwards. I think horse racing is, is definitely a sell. I think greyhound racing is pretty much sold, let alone sell. Squash. Squash is the ultimate sell. 
Everybody used to talk about, I'm going to have a game of squash. Hasn't Paddle taken over from squash anyway? Well, pickleball is one that's maybe a buy. Sports come and go, and they depend on their popularity. The essence of football and why it's so popular is its simplicity. You know, a ball is round, you kick it past someone into a defined area. It doesn't matter whether it's two jumpers on the local recreation ground or whatever it is. Football's very simple. Rugby was always too complicated for me. Now, rugby's gone beyond ridiculous in terms of complication and everything else. If we look forward 50 years, will people say, you know what, they used to race horses and they used to play a game called rugby. I just think there are sports that are dying. I think football is still there. Is it too big? It's almost used to settle wars now. It's definitely involved in human rights. We saw that very clearly with the recent World Cup. And it grew a bit. I mean, we didn't care that much when we went out. It was in in Argentina under the generals, did we? But now it's become... I think sport is an international battlefield now, if you like. With Colin's permission, John, may I ask you to get back in your crystal ball and... In 50 years' time, there won't be rugby as we know it. That's an interesting argument. Will there be heading in football? Mm, There may not be. I think that is quite possible. It is one of those elephants in the room, isn't it? We've stopped at the low level, junior level. We've probably stopped heading the ball so much. They're trying to keep it down. But what's the point of protecting children if their dads are going to get head injuries? Absolutely right. You know, Brian Clough used to talk about football should be played on the ground yeah, and so on. Yeah. But I wonder if you'd said to him, yeah, we're going to disallow headers, what he would have said. Yeah. We used to watch a lot of football games and they were ridiculous. So you used to get these things in midfield where people headed the ball yeah. back and forth to yeah. each other till eventually someone managed to control it and bring it down, which was a relief. Now, by and large, the game is played on the ground. Yeah, Vestergaard, for instance, although he's six foot thirty-three and a half or something, and when he jumps, he's five foot eight. But he plays the game largely on the ground. I could stand football without heading, and we all love heading by the attacking team in the opposing penalty area. We love that. But every time I see the ball coming out of the air, or every time I see what's going to be a fifty-fifty aerial challenge, I think this is wrong. This is just wrong. This is like watching motor racing in the 1960s. Mm. I feel a bit, I shouldn't be watching this because it's dangerous. And if I was the FA, if I was a one-man FA, I'd ban heading straight away. The right winger goes down the field, the ball at his feet, beats the left back, takes it to the byline, crosses. The ball goes in the air, not necessarily deliberately, but it just goes in the air. So is the only person allowed to go for it the goalkeeper? If I may say so, Colin, I hope your winger wouldn't be that bloody brainless. I hope he'd cut it back on the ground, knowing that the rules have changed. Yeah, I've seen a lot of brainless wingers. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, Colin, I'll set them up. You nod them in. Oh, sorry, you're not allowed to anymore. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Tap them in. No, you take my point. The ball goes in the air. Is it like a -a five-a-side game where you... It's very exciting. I'll give you another scenario. The ball is cut back on the ground. The midfield player, realising the new laws, picks it up Neil Young style, 
20 yards out and smashes it to the top corner. Is the fullback not allowed to head it over the bar? I, I, <laughs> I think it may. I think it may evolve. Passbacks and goalkeepers were allowed to pick up the ball from passback. Yeah. What we've now seen is the evolution of the goalkeeper. Yeah. So the game will evolve, I have no doubt. And I can actually see the game developing without heading because, like you, I worry about it. I go to funerals of footballers that I knew and amongst the older players of our yeah. sort of age and their worry is about dementia. I'm not disputing that, John. I just want to sort of, you know, as parents, when you have toddlers, sometimes you have reins where you actually haul them back from running off into some dangerous territory. Well, I'm trying to do this for the conversation because otherwise <laughs> we, 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 we've lost it. We're used to being treated like toddlers, don't worry. <laughs> oh, all right, I'm the daddy and you just come back onto the path. It's safer. Right, thank you. What I'm trying to do is pick up on John's point a little while ago about world peace. I mean, I think he's right. But why on earth would football become the manifestation of national pride and aggression? All right, Paddy, all yours. Oh, <laughs> right. My God, you could have put a bit more weight on that pass. Yeah, hit me right in the goonies, that. Yeah, <laughs> world peace then. Right, OK. Officially, internationally, football is there to promote peace or to be a force for good. I don't think you'd find anybody who's been connected with the administration of the game who doesn't believe at any level, whether you're the CEO of a tiny club or whether you're Gianni Infantino, you won't find anybody who doesn't believe or doesn't say they believe in harnessing of football for good. I don't know if it has become a focus of ultranationalism. Is that what you're saying, Colin? Well, no, but 1974, Paddy, World Cup final, we all remember, Holland versus Germany. There was a very strong sense of Holland, who unfortunately lost, but they were somehow, as a country, they were trying to reclaim what they'd lost between 1940 and 1945. That went all the way to 1988 European Championships, when the Van Basten Hullet team beat Germany in Germany. I think it was in Hamburg in the semi-final. I think it was the semi-final of the European Championship. And my God, I can remember being shocked, you know, because I always thought of the Dutch as, you know, very sort of civilised, measured, a bit arrogant, but very nice and all that. But my God, how they liked beating the Germans. It reminded me a little bit of how we as Scots used to like beating the English when we could. And my God, that was and a what about 1954-55 when Wolves yeah. seemed to be leading the free world against the communists of Moscow Dynamo? That's right. Was there a very strong Cold War feeling there? Yes, that's right. And I don't know if Cullis meant this, but the games were played in a militaristic way, you know, with watering the pitch and all-out assault in the mud. I don't really want to pursue this one because we still have terrible respect and sympathy for the people who died in the First World War. But there was a militaristic feel to it, which, I mean, I suppose only abated slightly when there was universal approbation of the Hungarian team who won at Wembley a couple of years later. But yeah, there was always this feeling that, uh, you know, I think it was post-imperial, really. It was imperial. You make a good point in that I've always had the opinion that the Americans who sort of had this role, as they saw it, of leaders of the free world and enforcers of the peace, which came as a result of the two world wars, which by and large, 
the side they came out on the side of won, and then they settled it. The Americans all believed during the 40s, 50s and 60s that what went on there went on the rest of the world. Interesting, because they didn't get football. They thought their sports were the best. And they actually have been spectacularly useless at exporting their sports. And one of the things that struck me over the last year has been golf was not invented in the US, but they thought they ran it. Basically, they were in charge of it. And then what happened? The Arabs came in with LIV and they bought it. And the Senate had to have a meeting about this. What's happened here? We controlled golf. Golf is ours. And now these people have come in and they've sort of bought everything. So sport is, it's an expression of world hegemony, isn't it? We've just had a fascinating tournament. It is very interesting. I don't take a lot of interest in golf, certainly outside the majors. But what I do like, and I think everybody around me liked, the recent Ryder Cup. Three days, same format for years and years. Huge crowds in Rome, which hadn't previously been the home of golf. It was absolutely mesmeric for three days. It wasn't a national... Colin, yes, it was. And two interesting points about the Ryder Cup. One, the players weren't playing for money. Right. And two, they were playing in a format that they don't play week in, week out. Helping each other. Which is no match play which is different. Match play golf was a long time, was a massive problem for television because they had to have cameras right the way out of the course because they couldn't predict the length of it and so on. And one of the things that has limited tennis's growth in the world is nobody can tell you how long a game of tennis lasts. Mm -hmm. You can be 6-0, 6-0, 5-0, 40 love down and still win umpteen hours later. Yes. The scoring system makes tennis unpredictable, but it also makes it for a television scheduler a nightmare. The other thing that struck me, there was one moment where the American commentator said the European supporters have better chance than us because all the US supporters could do is USA, USA. <laughs> Whereas we came up with all sorts of charts. You know, there's only one Tommy Fleetwood and all this sort of thing. They came from football. Those supporters were football supporters turning chants from football matches into chants mm. about individual players. Mm. And I think the Ryder Cup is a brilliant tournament. I thought it was Absolutely wonderful. The Ryder Cup, if you talk about international politics, the Ryder Cup is the only thing that has ever, as far as I know, united Europe. It's Mm. true. And it's also united in the sense that rugby also has. It united Ireland. Yes. But the Ryder Cup, we used to be GB and Ireland Mm. playing against the US. Then it got got beaten up every time. And then Ballesteros came along and we changed their tune, didn't we? Correct. And he hated Americans, didn't he? He just went out there and took great pleasure in beating them. It's no wonder, you know, I'm not interested in golf, but when you see those American crowds, my God, you suddenly think, yeah, I hope we give them a good base thing. Well, yeah, anybody who shouts, get in the hole half a second after the ball's left the tee. (laughs) Absolutely insane. You see, that again is down at football. We do not shout, get in the goal, no. when some, someone <laughs> makes a shot. Football <laughs> chanting, and as we've said, the wit and wisdom 
of the crowd yeah. adds a great deal to most of these yeah. uh, games. And of course, what's become evident is the Ryder Cup has a great atmosphere. It has great crowds. I actually don't think it's a particularly good watch live. I used to go a few years ago when it was played at the Belfry and you could actually watch and follow games around. Mm-hmm. Now, there are so many people there yeah. and they all say, oh, the atmosphere is wonderful. They should try going to a football match. No, but it works much better on television, John, because you can switch from green to green. You hear those roars from the distant green and you Correct. go instantly, oh, what's happened? What's happened? And television can tell you, but you can't if you're there. But wasn't it better when you weren't getting them quite so up to date and you heard a roar from off and you thought, oh, I wonder what's happened there. Yeah. And you got it later. So there was... a. Uh, Element of tension. That's about because it. the faraway roar is always more exciting. It's like when you leave a, and I know what you boys will say. Well, I don't leave a ground five minutes early, but when I have done once or twice and a goal is scored, it sounds like the best goal ever scored because I. But can't you don't know it. who scored. I don't know who scored. I know whether it's there's a difference between the full throated draw and the muffled draw, by which you know the away team have scored, or relatively muffled draw. But you can tell the difference whether it's a home or the away. Well, you can with cricket. A wicket falls yes. and you're out not where. You know exactly what's happened. You don't know who's out or how he was out, but you know he was out. And that's that terrible thing. You've got five pints on a tray and you're torn between wanting to stumble up the stairs and see who's... <laughs> or keep the pints intact. Oh, my God. That's what sport's all about. Anyway, I think it's odd that we've been talking away about, you know, has football got too big for its boots? internationally and we haven't talked about the role of football in arab oil nations setting out their stall for the next 50 100 years the purchases of manchester city of newcastle united of paris saint germain we have paddy because we've been talking about the way that it is an international game, and it's an international power game. Yeah. And I see the Premier League now as a battlefield. Yes. Almost like one of those games that you play. Yeah. I bought in the 5th Battalion there, and uh, you've bought that side, and, and so on. And at the moment, what we've got with the Premier League is the oil nations appear to be doing a bit better than the American ones. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that is because all they're doing is sport washing, and they don't care about the money. Whereas the Americans have got some sort of idea that you should be able to run this economically. Why does sports washing work? Well, I'm not sure it does work, but they see it as working, don't they? Because it gives them a good feeling about themselves and so on. Why did Murdoch at one point want to buy Manchester United? Why did... Robert Maxwell yes. want to buy Derby County and, and all these sort of things. And Manchester And United. bought Oxford. And why does the local scrap merchant in the old days, why did he want to buy the local football? Even though it resulted in them getting untold abuse. Well, you're right. I mean, Francis Lee, my great hero, yes. I wasn't one of those who did this, but you know, when City were notably unsuccessful, after all the promise of that Lee took over from Swales and everything would be wonderful, yeah. and it wasn't. And he got fearsome abuse. And I just felt very, very sad about that because he was a hero and didn't deserve that kind of abuse. But it doesn't matter if you're 15th in the table with no chance of going up and possibly going down, you're going to get it in the neck, even if you're Francis Lee. I think that's a shame. It's a shame, but of course it is a leveller because it also proves that 
you also have to run it correctly yeah. and run it right. Yeah. Big men, big countries buying things to make them feel better, ego, ways to spend the money, ways to feel big. Does it work? No, I don't think it does. Right. Can I bring in another comparison for both of you? John has talked before about the World Cup superseding the Olympic Games in importance. which I think is probably right, which does give an indication that football has certainly grown to that extent. Now, the Olympic Games traditionally, or in the late second half of the 20th century, had become problematically political. You know, the Russians invaded Afghanistan, the Americans pulled out of going to Moscow, the Russians pulled out of the next Olympics because they were in America in 84. This was overtly political, and Mrs Thatcher was cross that the British athletes went when the Americans had pulled out, even it's 1980. Mm-hmm. So it's become overtly political. Has football reached that level of politicisation? It always has. I mean, the idea that any games and sport should be above politics is nonsense because absolutely all parts of it's political, isn't it? Mm. You had an example when the Russians invaded Ukraine mm. and immediately the government called on the football clubs to stop playing in the Champions League, whereas it was some time before we started applying other sanctions. Politics is the business of living together in a community. Therefore, sport is a big part. In 1936, was it 1936? The World Cup was... 34 and 38. 38, Mussolini ran that World Cup. He actually attempted, and in a couple of cases successfully, to choose the referees. He had no interest in football, but he had a hell of a lot of interest in prestige. That was political. 1992, Denmark won the European Championship without qualifying for it, because Yugoslavia, because of the Serbian behaviour in the other Yugoslav republics, Yugoslavia was banned. But you can go back a long way further than that, to 1958, the Munich disaster, where 23 people perished on the Manchester United plane. One person who survived was Matt Busby's assistant, Jimmy Murphy. Why was he not there? Because he was looking after the Wales national team, of which he was manager, who were playing Israel in a playoff in Cardiff. Therefore, he didn't go to Munich. Why were Wales playing Israel? Because Other nations, including, I think, Belgium, had refused to play Israel. You know, politics and football have always been intertwined. Whether it's a good thing or not, I don't know. There's a thin line between football interfering in politics and doing what is right. Correct. I can't believe... I mean, we talk about taking the knee. Yes. Which they still do. They've sort of evolved it. Yes. A wee bit. Yeah. What we're talking about here, essentially... It's politics and football and politics and sport and so on. The fact is that sport is a very, very big part now of everyday life. It always has been, but it's an even bigger part now of everyday life. Therefore, for better, for worse, we get involved in all sorts of political gestures. I see recently at the start of the Hamas-Israel conflict that the FA was silent on the topic. I don't know. Should the FA come out and start saying things? Is that the right thing? Is that going to help matters? Is it going to make matters worse? I don't know, but inevitably it will be there. Did taking the knee 
force people to think more about racial discrimination. Anybody who's read Michael Holding's book on why we take the knee would see that he completely considered that the West Indies side that played against England and so on were involved in some kind of a political war. So it's inevitable, isn't it? Is football too big for its boots? Has it got too big? It's just as a result of its own popularity. Whatever we say on this programme, football has been a phenomenal success throughout the world, a commercial success at almost every level. Every weekend, the grounds in England are packed. The crowds are now bigger than they've been at any time since the war. You will not be able to impose a solution of lessening the amount of football in the atmosphere until the crowds start to disappear. Mm. The moment that the ratings drop on the television and the crowds stay away from the game, you can do anything you want. But John is right that as long as people are consuming it willingly in the numbers that they are, there is absolutely nothing that can be done. I know you're just putting the question rather than making a statement, but if you believe that, as I do, that that the world would be a better place if people like us showed a bit more enlightenment. Why the bloody hell do I sit down in front of the television and instead of scrolling through the films, I Google a thing called Football on TV, which tells you that Sassuolo are playing Genoa in the Italian Cup at 7.45. And why do I tune in for 10 minutes before realising that I'd be better off watching one of the films? We've got to get out of it. I agree with you, Paddy, but it is possible to live a life that involves an interest and a keen interest in sport and in football without letting it overwhelm everything else that you're talking about. Yeah, but John was just saying right at the beginning that he's a bit that way. He finds himself watching football and his wife comes in and says... Oh, God, not football again. I turn it off because Mrs. Holmes is in charge. Yeah. Except for the fact she will bow down to the fact that Leicester do take precedence yeah. then if Leicester are on. Well, I'm glad to hear that Mrs. Holmes imposes a bit more discipline on you than Colin Schindler does. It does. The best story, of course, is that we went to the theatre and we saw the play about England at yeah. the National Theatre. Yeah. Mrs. Holmes enjoyed it more than me because she actually hadn't realised that England hadn't won the World Cup since 1966. So it all came as a revelation to her. I kid you not. Having said that, there we are with West End plays. I remember also there was a play called An Evening with Gary Lineker, ran for two years. The play hasn't been revived, but to give people a flavour, the husband was watching so much of the football that his wife announced while he was watching it that she was leaving him. And he said, oh, that's fine, but can we discuss it after the match? So in desperation, she said, yes, I'm leaving you for Gary Lineker. At which point he turned around and said, well done. (laughs) But uh, is football too big for itself? The fact is that the game has grown dramatically. There are occasions where it gives me enormous pleasure, but I don't get the thrill now that I used to because there's so much, so much of it. You know, we used to look forward to the game on Saturday, didn't we? Really very, very much. We used to look forward to the FA Cup. I used to look forward to the FA Cup. But now the FA Cup, no, no, it comes as a distraction. Well, these are the thoughts of 
men of our age, I suppose, what one would have to say. I'd be curious to know what a 30-year-old listening to this podcast, if there are any, <laughs> thinks about, about what we've been saying. Because, I mean, it, you know, we can summon up very easily the feelings that we had as 30-year-olds ourselves and that specialness of a Saturday afternoon and that feeling of going to the ground and suddenly seeing all these television cameras were outside. It was that much of the day tonight. It was a thrill mm. to go back and see it. David Coleman commentating, sitting on the gantry in the front of the main stand. It was great. You know, it's so ubiquitous, football, that it can't do that. Paddy, do you have any regrets then about it not being as it was in our youth? And would we have wanted in our youth so much more access to football that we now have. My only regret is that Dundee are no longer champions <laughs> as they were in the old days. When, well, uh, only once. Yes, but uh, <laughs> we thought it would last forever, golly. <laughs> <laughs> there was the magic. I remember the magic then. For a start, you only saw football once every two weeks because you didn't go to away games. It was just so different. And yes, I was happier then because Dundee won the league. But if they hadn't, I'd prefer it now. We can watch in comfort. I can watch every Barcelona game if I want. And there was a time when I did. So I wouldn't trade then for now. I just wish I could be a bit more discriminating. I wish I was a bit more like Mrs. Holmes, a more balanced person, you know, who can take an interest in a variety of subjects. And that's my fault, not football's. Well, that's kind of what I was saying before. I mean, it's us as individuals. If us, we all make decisions not to watch as much football on television, the ratings will fall and the sponsors will disappear and it will all change. But at the moment, the power of the people has decided that they want a lot of football. But there we are. I don't think we've solved anything. I do think we've actually aired some grievances and made some sensible points about politics and football and its growth. And my thanks, therefore, go as ever to Paddy Barclay and to John Holmes, and particularly to our long-suffering, indefatigable producer, Paul Kobrak. It's been a pleasure sharing these thoughts with you. For everybody who would like to let us know what they think about what we're doing, please write to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. So thank you to all three of you and thank you to everyone listening and we'll see you all again next time on Football Ruin My Life. This is Colin Chintler saying goodbye. More sad news, I'm afraid, this week. We are getting to do these little addenda to the podcast rather too frequently. Having started with Francis Lee and Bobby Charlton, we now go to yet another member of that famous quarter-final in Lyon in 1970. And it is, of course, Franz Beckenbauer, Der Kaiser. And I think we were all affected one way or another by all these players. And we were all profoundly affected by, certainly in Beckenbauer's case, seemingly their early passing. And I know we all want to say a very short little piece. So, John, do you want to kick us off? What's your memory of Franz Beckenbauer? I met Beckenbauer once or twice. He had this serenity about him. The first time I was actually in his company, I went with Gary to the Golden Boot ceremony and the Ballon d'Or ceremony in Paris on the Champs-Élysées after the 1986 World Cup. And we arrived at the same time as Beckenbauer. And when we went into that room where there were a lot of greats in that room, there was Gert Muller and Van Basten, Cruyff and so on. Maradona was there as well. And 
everybody looked round when Beckenbauer went in there. He was truly an icon of the game. We talk about our generation and the first foreign players we became aware of. We've talked about the Stefano and Puskas and so on and the Real Madrid side. But Beckenbauer's impact in the 66 World Cup as a 20-year-old made an impression on all of us. And what he went on to achieve was incredible, magnificent player who tactically invented the game and one of only three men to have won the World Cup as a player and a manager. Paddy, I'm sure you saw Beckenbauer play any number of times. Did you also meet him or were all your memories simply that of a great player? I did meet him once when I went to a FIFA forum, a very valuable thing set up by Blatter and Platini called Task Force 2000. I'll never forget sitting around a table before we were due to be taken out to dinner and we were all drinking beers. There was me and there was all these greats, you know. Honestly, I promise you this is true. When I realised it was my round, I said, OK, are we all staying on beer? Johan, Franz, Michel. I promise you that was my exact words. At which point they all shouted, Scottish Tiger. No, they actually said, actually, I'll go on to champagne now. <laughs> At which point my credit card melted. But that was the only time I met him. But he did have that presence. He was a star. Also, as John alluded, he invented a position. I mean, even today, if a footballing defender, you know, tries to dribble his way out of trouble, people say, who do you think you are? Beckenbauer? Concept of constructing from the back. Basically playing at the back, but as a midfield player, as a playmaker. He did create a position, just as Cruyff created a manoeuvre. So that contributed towards the mystique. But as John so eloquently put it, he probably, even if he'd been an accountant, he would have been the accountant who turned heads. He just had that, John called it serenity, presence, call it what you will, that carriage, you know, that made you say, who's that? Well, I never met him, unlike you two, and I'm not sure I ever necessarily saw him play live, because I remember him best from the first time that I ever I saw his face. It was during the 1966 World Cup. He was still only 20 years old, but he was elegant and upright, and he moved with grace and style. The first goal, which I think was scored against Uruguay in the 4-0 win in the quarterfinal, was to be a miniature version of what we came to recognise as his trademark. Collecting a square pass from Haller on the right wing as he approached the penalty box, he played a 1-2 with Uwe Zeller with his right foot, collected the ball again inside the penalty area and calmly stroked the ball past the advancing goalkeeper with the outside of his left foot. He scored again in the semi-final with a fierce shot from the edge of the area that left Lev Yashin bewildered, arriving at his far post as Beckenbauer's shot was already nestling in the corner of the net. We feared what he might do to England in the final, but Germany feared Bobby Charlton just as much, with the result that they marked each other out of the game. Beckenbauer made sure England knew he was around in 1970 and 1972 and the future held many triumphs for Der Kaiser, but the way he announced himself on the international scene left an indelible mark on my memory. It seems odd, in a way, that he died, apparently, of natural causes. You would think it would take more than that for the angel of death to triumph over Franz Beckenbauer. R.I.P. Der Kaiser. Well, thank you, chaps. Thank you for your memories. We'll see you all next time, I hope, in lighter mood 
on Football Ruined My Life. Thanks to John, thanks to Paddy. This is Colin Schindler saying thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.